From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we'll be continuing our discussion with three senior partners about their research on the factors that most affect a strategy's success and the moves companies need to make to boost their long-term corporate performance. These findings come from their recent book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, People, Probabilities, and Big Moves to Beat the Odds. In our last podcast, we discussed the author's power curve model, which graphs the world's largest company's performance and shows that the middle 60% of companies make little, if any, economic profit. Today, we'll discuss the answer to the question, how can companies rise to the top quintile of performers that earn the lion's share of economic profit? With me today are Chris Bradley, based in our Sydney office, Martin Hurt, out of our Greater China office and who co-leads our global strategy and corporate finance practice, and Sven Smith, based in our Amsterdam office. Welcome. Sven, let me start with you. Your book is grounded in four years of research covering more than 100 industry sectors, 60-plus countries, and about 2,500 companies. But you talk about just 10 variables that determine a company's probabilities of success. How did you zero in on that number? Yeah, so first of all, we did not identify these variables. We put a lot of variables in, way more than 10. And this is what the analytics came up with. And it has very, very high predictive power with just these 10 variables. Had the algorithm found five, we would have taken five. These, these 10, they come in three buckets. One is a description of the starting point of the company. Another one is the trends that affect the company. And then the third bucket is the moves. Can you explain what the company's starting point refers to? Yeah, so the reality is you inherit what your predecessor did. I've talked to oil and gas companies in the past, and they said, you know, it's not the investment that my predecessor, but his predecessor did, that are now the oil fields that are flowing the oil right now. And that's sort of the R&D concept. So it, it does matter what was done before you. If you inherit as a CEO a company with extremely high leverage, it means that you don't have investment capacity. Uh, if you inherit a company with low leverage and a good opportunity comes by, you actually have the money to take it. And so your starting point matters. The first category are variables that are almost a given. If you come in as a new CEO, the company size is what it is. Your balance sheet in terms of leverage ratio, for example, is what it is. And your past R&D spending cannot be changed anymore. Those variables we grouped under endowment, things that you're given that you can't change but they do matter in terms of your probabilities of moving up and down the curve. And that's intuitively clear uh, if you compare a very large-scale IT company in terms of their ability to generate economic profit. That's obviously on a different level than a mom-and-pop store selling ice cream. And uh, therefore, size does matter. Size is relevant. Scale is relevant. The second group of factors had more to do with the trends that a company is exposed to. So the industry trend is the industry experiencing tailwinds or headwinds, and the geographic trends is the company exposed to high growth geographies. And then the third group of factors that we found are related to the strategy of the company under the control of management. Thanks, Martin. You say in the book that it's the third category that's most important. Share with us some of those factors. Number one, the type of M&A program that the management pursues. Number two, the speed of resource reallocation to higher growth areas within the current portfolio and new growth areas outside the portfolio. 
Number three, the absolute amount of capex relative to the industry that the company is in. Number four, the strength of the productivity program relative to the industry. And number five, the amount of additional differentiation achieved by the company relative to its industry. And for each of these factors, we're not only able to determine how big their impact was on the mobility of the company on the economic profit power curve, but also how hard you need to pull each of these levers to actually make a difference. So how do these three categories of factors work together in the model you've developed? Chris, maybe you could offer a little insight there. So it's the combination of your endowment, your trend, and your moves that determines what your odds of strategy are. So put it this way, if I, if I meet your average company and I know nothing else about you except that you're in the middle quintiles of economic profit, I have a base rate for your probability of, of a strategic breakthrough is 8% because that's 1 in 12. That's how many companies go up the power curve. But then if later on I discover just through asking a few more questions that you've got a really positive endowment, um, you have a, an industry mega trend on your side and you've got terrific uh, plans to really, really pull, achieve big moves, then I would kind of upgrade your probability of success to like 30, 40, 50, 60%. There's companies in our database where the predicted probability of moving up the power curve was like 80 or 90%. Admittedly, that's very few companies manage to get all of the endowment trend and move in the right place. But when you do, your odds are incredibly high. So if we couple your endowment and your trend together into what you might call your inheritance, which is kind of what are you given, then your moves are what you can do about it. And out of our 10 variables, by the way, there's five of them are part of your inheritance and five of them are part of their moves. And correspondingly, by the way, it's actually about 50-50. So really strong moves can overcome a poor inheritance. So what you're saying is your strategic moves give you an opportunity to beat even competitors who have a stronger position at the starting gate. Is that right? Big moves really can make a difference. And that's where our book gives keys to CEOs about what power they actually do have because the big moves are things you actually can do. Now, they're hard. They take 10 years, and you've got to do it in a competitive world, but you can do them. So let me give you an example. On productivity, every company does productivity, of course, but the question is how much. And we found that whether a company does a little bit of productivity, quite a lot of productivity, or actually more productivity than the rest of the industry almost didn't matter. It only started mattering when a company did 25% more productivity than the industry median. So if you're an industry that does 2% productivity improvements per year, year on year, you only influence your probability of moving up the power curve if you do 2.5% every year consistently. So 25% more than the rest of the industry every year. Another example, resource reallocation, whether you allocate a bit of resources or quite a bit of resources to other places, doesn't matter that much. It only matters when you allocate more than 60% of your CapEx over a 10-year period to new growth areas outside the portfolio or high growth areas inside the portfolio. Can you say a bit more about how the empirical analysis that you did helps companies benchmark what they need to do to outperform their competition? Sven? If you look at the big moves, uh, both in M&A and organic resource allocation, the average of what a company does per annum that we found in the data is something like 2 to 
And guess what? If you do 10 years of 2 to 3% resource allocation, you get a 20% new company. But what we found is that the companies that make the big move to progress it at 5 to 6% per annum on M&A or 5 to 6% per annum on organic resource allocation, they get 60% new companies. That is a big move that we like. Similarly, we find that in productivity and differentiation, which are margin-related things, you could say, why is that in strategy? The companies that have moved their margins faster than competition, not to the level of competition, but faster than competition, that's what the data suggests, got the capacity to earn by which they could also fund some of these investments. Uh, but the data found it wasn't good enough to be ahead of competition in your cost. It's are you moving your cost base down faster than your competition? If you are in a high growth environment and you do the capex investment to try to outperform, you have to outinvest your competitor by 1.7 times, not 17%, 1.7 times. I did not know that that was that number. The data said it. And one of the other things that is interesting about the data that we found is not only do we know the levers, but we know their calibration. It's not 2%, it's 6 It's not 17% increase, it's 1.7. And that is really the richness of this data. So there are five big moves that really matter, and it's important how strongly you execute them. Does it also matter which or how many of the five big moves you make? The one thing you can say is that pulling no lever or one lever doesn't actually get you that much. It changes the odds at best a little bit when you pull one lever. Only the combination of two or more levers being pulled hard enough to make a difference actually starts substantially moving the odds of a company moving up the power curve. And to just show you how hard it is, out of 2,500 companies over a 10-year period, only one company was able to pull all five levers. Only one out of 2,500 of the largest companies in the world. So pulling multiple levers is actually more important than the question of which one now to pull. That's very context-specific, also has to do with the context of the industry and so forth. Can you give us an example of a company that went the route of pulling multiple levers and managed to rise to the top of the power curve? So in the book, we talk about a uh, company, PCC, Precision Cast Parts, that is a multi-industrial holding company. And if you look at what they historically did, they didn't have the size at the starting point, so they didn't get a lift from the starting point. They actually had reasonable trends. Industrials were doing good over the last 10 years. Uh, and they fired resource allocation, uh, M&A, differentiation, and productivity. So they fired four out of five. And their odds from their starting point, if we had not known anything of the company, would be that they, they had a 8% chance to go from the flat middles to the top. If we actually modeled what they actually did, they ended up with a, uh, I think it's 76% chance to move to the top, which is what they did. Uh, and so our model is actually pretty good at multiplying out all these factors and coming up with a significant uh, move. Your book also talks about the dynamics within corporate leadership teams and the biases people tend to have to create inertia that gets in the way of fulfilling strategic plans. Martin, in your experience working with clients, which of these five big moves are the hardest to make? And can you share some tips for how to overcome those challenges? So resource reallocation certainly is one of the most difficult topics for management because careers are at stake, jobs are at stake, possibly the future of the company could be at stake. It's a very difficult discussion and 
it's not surprising that that discussion is maybe the one that's most fraught with the perils of the social side of strategy. When I, I'm with a management team and ask the question of who of the present BU leaders believes that their business in terms of future growth and profit potential is in the lower half of the BUs that the company has, guess how many hands go up? None, of course. Everybody believes in their business. Everybody believes that their business has lots of upside potential. If you ask the question of the portfolio of businesses the company has or is looking at, which is the one business that you believe has the best chance of succeeding? Then you get actually different answers. Then people find it often very easy to agree. And why is that? Because once you remove the social factor of them feeling personally, you know, threatened in their career by admitting that their business has no potential. People have a relatively clear view on what's moving and what's not moving. And uh, therefore, I think having an open conversation about what the few businesses are that are likely to succeed is a good starting point. So our individual biases, our behaviors, our individual agendas, the social dynamics in the management team are getting into the way of good strategy decisions and strategy execution. It would probably be getting far ahead of our skis if we claimed that we have a convincing and conclusive answer. But I think in our hundreds of conversations and our work with CEOs around the world, we have learned practices. We have learned tricks that they use to actually manage this and guide it in the right direction. I think the most profound step you can take is to bring the empirics that we discussed into the room. Once you actually change the debate away from a debate about the strategy of each business in isolation, and you actually have an empirical sort of a benchmark, a strategy benchmark, where you can all of a sudden discuss, you know, your presentation looked great. We loved it. We actually believe in your business. But the facts are that the strategy you presented because it's lacking big moves, has no more than a 25% chance of succeeding and success being defined as you achieving the targets that you just described or that we gave you. While your colleague here had a really miserable PowerPoint, but based on what was presented, we believe, and the numbers would say, that that's more like a 75-80% chance of success. So should we invest in a 25% strategy or the 80% strategy? And simply by introducing a benchmark that allows to compare strategies at some level, you change the debate. Betting your company and your career on big strategic moves sounds pretty risky, though. Do the leaders you work with worry about the downside of making these moves and having them not pan out and causing the company to actually drop down the power curve? The big moves have an interesting characteristics. The big moves are asymmetric in terms of their risk profiles, meaning that by pulling a lever harder, we improve the chances of a company going up the power curve and at the same time reduce the risk of it sliding down. So it's not just that you're loading the company with more risk and doing more crazy things. Bold, in our sense, is not crazy. Bold is deliberate and trying to de-risk moves that get you to win. So the beauty about the analysis is that we can conclusively show that the companies who do big moves move up 
and substantially lower their risk of falling down. In fact, you could say that the riskiest strategy of any company is not to do any big moves because that almost guarantees that they will slide down. Chris, this notion of a company's inheritance, Martin and Sven talked about it as a given. Uh, It's what you get to work with. But part of that endowment or that inheritance are the trends you're dealing with. And a company can change the trends it's exposed to by shifting to new geographies and industry segments, right? We think of it a bit like driving a car in traffic. There's two levers you have. You can change lanes or you can step on the accelerator. So if you're you're in a really slow-moving lane, you, you, you actually have just fundamental limits to how much pushing the accelerator is actually going to work. So any good strategy is a combination of changing lanes into the faster lanes and stepping on the gas. We call changing lanes kind of portfolio moves. So that's things like rapidly reallocating resources to different uses, pursuing a programmatic approach to um, deals and achieving you know extremely high opportunity creation in terms of uh, capital spending. But getting better and stepping on the accelerator, we call them performance moves. So they're, for example, productivity improvement or differentiation resulting in a, you know improving your relative, relative gross margin. So when we talk about moves, it's not isolated from where to compete. In fact, one would argue that the levers that drive your where to compete are in the long run a little bit more important than the, the levers that you'd pull to drive your performance. In other words, the first question of strategy, and our research keeps coming back to this, is not how do I get better at what I do, but how do I do the right things? Is there a recommended sequence to making these big moves? You know, is one more important to do first than the other? There is no sequence to big moves that's generically applicable to any company. It always depends on the context and the specific situation of the company. So there is no replacement for any CEO or management to actually understand the outside world have a very clear perspective on a diagnostic of where their company stands and then shaping an agenda around big moves. It is true that the choice of industry you play in is the single biggest factor determining the success of a company. And in that, the old truth that we have proven 10 years ago already when we did the work about growth in our book, Granularity of Growth, that the choice of where to play is the most important choice that any company can make. It is still highly context-specific to actually determine which moves in what sequence to do. That's why we typically go in with a very systematic and highly prescriptive diligence that within a very short period of time identifies the opportunities for value creation and tailors moves both in their choice, in their scale, in their timing and their sequence to the specific situation of a company. Let's talk a little bit about the global context right now. Companies are competing in a world full of geopolitical uncertainty, accelerating change, digitization. How does that uncertainty factor into your analysis and recommendations? Yeah, so first of all, this entire research was done across a cycle, uh, including the last recession. So in that sense, it's robust. We were not looking at a period of just going up. Uh, It has a recession 
built in and a significant one, as if you remember the last one. We always talk about uncertainty moving forward. First, I want to address something, though, that we, we touch on in the book, which is uncertainty going backwards. We always have this kind of overconfidence about our understanding of history. So the first, you know, the, the classic, when performance is good, it was superior management. When performance is bad, it is the weather. Um, <laughs> now, that, that's a bit playful, but you go and listen to a lot of analyst um, calls and you'll, you'll hear things like that all the time. So it's very difficult to think about the future, but we'd argue the starting point is to actually make sure you've decoded the past. Like the past is actually quite mysterious. And that's the beginning of a lot of the social side of strategy because you end up having a story that you tell yourself about your performance. Um, now, in reality, the world is changing very fast, but the world is always changing. And if you really, really interrogate your history and really understand it, what you'll see is actually these forces are at work very evidently in your results. And, you know, part of, you know, how I counsel my clients to kind of get bolder about the future is I, I help them untangle what happened in the past and how much of that came down to the trends they rode and the big moves they make. So the first step is actually to know why I got where I got. Thank you. Any final thoughts you'd like to share before we end our session? Strategy is not deterministic. Strategy is a matter of probabilities. There is nothing that's certain, but improving the probabilities of success is what we set out to do. So we now have an empirical understanding, not just of what the 10 factors are that matter, five of them being directly related to the strategy of a company, but we also know how much you need to pull each of these levers in order to make a real difference. Our final thought is this, boldness is not reckless. Think about the analogy this way, if you're living on the side of a volcano and it starts erupting, running extremely fast is actually the safest thing you can do. And our evidence, I think, shows most companies are living on the side of a volcano. So moving fast, being really, really responsive and going bold is actually, you know what, the least risky and the safest approach. Thank you for joining us today. A transcript of this podcast will be posted on our practice page on mckinsey.com, where you can also find links to previous episodes. If you'd like to receive future updates with our latest insights, you can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance, or sign up for email alerts on our practice page on mckinsey.com. On our next podcast, Inside the Strategy Room, we'll continue the conversation with Chris and focus on how companies can overcome the social dynamics and biases in the strategy room to help ensure that their strategic plans actually become reality. We look forward to having you join us on our next episode, Inside the Strategy Room.